We're talking second-year running backs and wide receivers. Who has the potential to break out in surprising historical projections on Rotoviz Radio? I'm Dave Cabin. This is Rotoviz Radio brought to you by the FFPC. I'm joined, as always, by Matthew Friedman, editor in chief of Fantasy Labs, part of the Action Network. How's it going, Matt? It's good to have you back. Uh, yeah, it's good to be back. Not joined, as always, by Matt Friedman because last week I was out. Uh, no voice and respiratory issues, but uh, I am good now, except for the lingering cough, which I'm going to try to limit during the podcast. Yeah, well, I think I and the uh, the listeners appreciate that, and it is good to have you back. Now, last week I joked that I thought that your voice issues were coming from some cheers uh, coming from your way when the uh, Supreme Court <laughs> passed down that gambling decision. Yes, uh, that was fantastic news. Uh, that was basically all that everyone in the company could talk about, and that was the exact time when I lost my voice. So it was a, an opportune moment to be unable to talk, but yeah, lots to talk about with that decision. Yeah, definitely. So I was curious just to kind of get your take, uh, just for everybody out there, in case you don't know, in a 6-3 to three ruling uh, in favor of New Jersey, the Supreme Court ruled that states should be able to determine if gambling, or excuse me, if betting on sports will be legal within their borders. So this is a huge decision. You already have companies like DraftKings saying that they're going to enter the legal betting atmosphere. New Jersey's full swing ahead for it. You have states like Delaware, Mississippi, Rhode Island, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, West Virginia, Connecticut, New York. They're trying to get out legislation in their states to make it legal. So what do you think, in addition to just the fact that it's going to be awesome to be able to actually bet on NFL games, NBA, all of that, do you think that this has an impact on the fantasy industry? Yeah, I think uh, it will just bring more people into the general sports speculation space. Uh, So whether people are betting on games or uh, playing daily fantasy sports, whatever it is, uh, or maybe they're playing more uh, high stakes fantasy leagues, whatever it is, I think more people are going to be interested in fantasy than before. And I, you know, obviously that's a great thing. Yeah, definitely. And the one thing that I'm kind of hoping too is with an increased focus now on gambling, and I'm sure there's going to be creative ways that companies are going to be able to kind of bridge that gap between fantasy and betting. I'm thinking that we might see some more focus on stats and increase on those next gen type of stats and just kind of getting more data out there to users. Uh, And then the other thing that I thought was great about it was the fact that this really now supports uh, the fantasy industry as well in maintaining, you know, the ability to be played and to give people a chance to, you know, play in leagues like FFPC leagues and these other sites. So it's good for the industry as a whole. And I think that it's just going to be awesome to add in this other element uh, into what's already just such a fun industry. Yeah, absolutely agree. I think the focus on statistics is going to be something that is really going to catch on in the next couple of years. Um, I think it's already there for the people who are hardcore into fantasy sports and sports speculation in general. Uh, and I think you're going to see more data services uh, you know, pop up offering the next level statistics that people need to, uh, to have some edge. 
Yeah, well, all good things to look forward to. And I'm sure at some point we'll start getting uh, into some of that uh, on Rotoviz. So, quick reminder that you can get a listeners only 30% discount to a Rotoviz NFL pass through the NFL podcast homepage, rotoviz.com forward slash podcast. Your subscription gives you unlimited access to all of our premium NFL content and it supports the pod. And I want to remind everybody that by subscribing to and rating Rotoviz Radio Channel on iTunes, you can be eligible to win a free $35 entry into a league at the FFPC. Go to iTunes, leave a review with your name in it, and then listen to future episodes to hear if you're the winner. This week's winner is American Bot at Frank underscore Duffy on Twitter. So congrats, Frank. You are the winner. So shoot us an email at rotovizradio at gmail.com and we will get that set up. Also, if you're interested in being in an, in an FFPC league with some of the Rotoviz writers and podcasters, email us at rotovizradio at gmail.com and we'll get that set up. So Blair Andrews has been putting out a tremendous column each week called The Wrong Breed, where he's looking at things that are talked about on Rotoviz podcasts, some things that, you know, maybe we kind of question during episodes or we allude to, but things that are worth researching more. And one of the things that he's looked at in his last two articles in the series are wide receiver and running back breakouts in the NFL. And he's defining that for running backs as overall season long points, top 24 performances for running backs and top 36 finishes for wide receiver. And what he came to find essentially was that the majority of players that do break out are doing so either in their rookie year or the majority do it in their second year. If they're not breaking out after year one or year two, they're less likely and it's rare that they do break out. So I thought that it would make sense for us to kind of review the player's that are in the 2017 classes. So we'll take a look at the running backs, the wide receivers, kind of talk about them and see if we can identify any of those players that look like they could break out in the 2018 season. So we had four running backs break out under that criteria in 2017. Obviously, you had Alvin Kamara, Kareem Hunt, Leonard Fournette, Christian McCaffrey. Now, Tariq Cohen finished in PPR as running back 30. So I think it might make sense to use him as the jumping off point. As you look forward, Matt, to this season, we have some changing faces in Chicago. He's going to be playing behind Jordan Howard. Does Cohen look like a guy that could be one of these breakout players? Maybe, but I think he has a very capped ceiling. Uh, So I think if he does break out, it's going to be just sort of like a degree better than what we saw out of him last year. Maybe some more receptions, maybe a few more carries, you know, 100 carries instead of 87 carries, uh, you know, maybe 60 receptions instead of 53, and maybe a few more touchdowns. But I don't think it's going to be a big leap forward. If there's someone in this class I would expect to take a big leap forward, I think it's clearly Joe Mixon uh, because he was highly inefficient as a rookie. But they were giving him carries, and he is a prolific receiver. So if they continue to amp up his usage, which we would expect to see, I could see him having a massive breakout. Yeah, I think that Mixon was the obvious guy that came to mind for me. Uh, There's no question of Jeremy Hill being there now. We've seen Gio Bernard kind of losing, I guess, command that he had in that offense. He'd been a very popular fantasy pick for 
number of years running last year, I think we saw him kind of take a step back. And it doesn't seem that there's any reason that Mixon shouldn't get the opportunity right out of the gate. And if you look at the targets that Bernard has had year in and year out, he doesn't even have to see a huge percentage of that for Mixon to pick up another 20, 25, 30 targets. So I think we could definitely be looking at him as a guy that would be that breakout. If you look at the Bengals offense as a whole, though, do you have any concerns that, you know, the they might not be able to function well enough to support a top 24 running back? Uh, I don't think it's going to be a great offense, but I think he could be a top 24 running back, you know, maybe like high end running back one. It doesn't, I mean, sorry, high end running back two. It doesn't take that much for a guy at this point, uh, just because of the devaluation of the position in general for a guy to be a high end running back two. you know, if he gets, uh, last year, he wasn't all that far off of a thousand yards. So if he just gets, you know, a few more touches per game. He could be a 11, 1200 yard guy with, you know, eight to 10 touchdowns like that puts him there. Yeah, it certainly does. Um, So I I think that Mixon is the obvious choice. Now, I'm just going to quickly read off for everybody the other guys that we could possibly be considering. I find it interesting what's going to shake out in that Green Bay backfield with Jamal Williams and Aaron Jones. Uh, There's also names such as Samaj P. Ryan, Wayne Gallman, Marlon Mack, Corey Clement, Elijah McGuire. Obviously, Dalvin Cook, I think we can all agree you can expect a breakout. I think that was obvious. He would have had it had he played in all the games last year. Uh, Other names are Donta Foreman, Chris Carson, James Conner, Brian Hill, um, Justin Davis, Elijah Hood, Jeremy McNichols. Did any of those pop out? I think we'll save the conversation about the Green Bay backs because that I want to spend some time on. But out of that list, did anybody pop out to you? Yeah, Cook is obviously someone who's interesting. Foreman is interesting too, but both of those guys are coming off of you know fairly serious injuries. So right. I know it's, um, I mean, I know Cook is someone who started off really hot, but he had only, I believe, three full games. Maybe it was four full games of action. Um, you know, different offensive uh, coordinator there returning from the injury. Uh, I understand the bullishness on him, but I'm a little bit pessimistic uh, that he can just return and be the player that he was before, especially since it was just a small sample. Um, but I do understand the enthusiasm around him. Uh, Marlon Mack is someone who is interesting, but I don't think that he's going to have the uh, requisite touches to become someone who really breaks out at a high level. If he becomes a you know, a quote unquote breakout, I think he will just barely slide in as a low end running back too. But I think a lot of the touches in that Indianapolis backfield are going to be split. And I think uh, Naheem Hines is someone who's going to steal a lot of the workload. Yeah. And one of the things that people have liked about Mac, at least in what I've heard, especially when we consider last year, was the option of him getting involved in the passing game. Well, In my opinion, Hines is the better receiver, and it would make sense that if the Colts do want to get him involved in the offense, that's how they would start to get him going. Um, And as it was, we only saw 30 targets go to Mac last year. Obviously, the offense could change if Andrew Luck is healthy. So while, like you, I can understand why there might be some excitement about Mac, I have trouble getting on board with him having that breakout season. Um, the other thing, too, is if you look at last year, he only had one game where he got over 11 attempts. Now, obviously, slightly different situation in that offense last year. But like you said, the opportunity for him might be capped. And there's a lot of, I guess, 
can concern if luck doesn't come back you know i don't think even if you remove the fear of the target or whatnot that offense just doesn't feel like one that's going to have that running back in an rb2 range where they're going to be controlling games going to be able to rely on their back so as i mentioned before i find one of the uh backfields that's very interesting this season to be green bays and i don't really have a good feel for who's going to emerge with the large majority of carries and targets in that offense naturally you have the two players that are going to be in their second year with Jamal Williams and Aaron Jones. There's still Ty Montgomery hanging out. I think that Montgomery figures to be the third in line. Out of Williams and Jones, who do you see getting that work? Uh, I think it's Jones. Uh, He was the more impressive guy. They were drafted in comparable ranges, like just one round apart, you know, pretty identical. I know that Williams did get more of the work last year, but I think uh, Jones flashed a little bit more when he was able to... uh, to get in there. And I think he's the better receiver too. So uh, in the end, I have uh, Jones as the guy that I think will win out. Uh, And also I think he has the lower draft range right now uh, in terms of ADP, which, uh, you know, I think makes him much more attractive also. (laughs) Yeah, that certainly does. Well, let me do a quick little query here on this. So it looks like the last time that I refreshed ADP in my file, Williams was going around 86 in PPR leagues, and Aaron Jones was going – it should be somewhere around there. He was going at 95, so it looks like there is a little bit of a favor right now with the drafting public to Williams. Um, the, the, the thing that makes it really hard to tease out with them is we saw a lot of injuries – in that backfield, really creating a murky situation to figure out. So if they don't cannibalize the work from each other, which I suspect that the team is going to want to find one back that they're going to use more than the others, do you think that that back in that Packers offense, where would you, I guess let me rephrase that, where would you place the ceiling for that back if one of these guys is able to run away with the work? Um, You know, a low-end running back one. Uh, think of Eddie Lacy uh, back in the day when he was, you know, a better receiver than people kind of give him credit for being and still fairly effective as a runner uh, because that offense will be able to move up and down the field. So even though uh, Aaron Rodgers isn't someone who routinely likes to hand the ball off to his running back at the goal line, that guy will still get some usage near the goal line. So that's someone who has, you know, anywhere from like a 12 to 1400 yard ceiling with eight to 12 touchdowns. Yeah. And just before we close out on them now, I normally don't like to look at yards per carry that much, but I think it's something that teams and coaches will look to. And just for uh, for a comparison, Williams averaged just 3.6 yards per attempt on his carries. Aaron Jones was at five and a half. So there definitely was a delineation there. So I can see why you would like Jones better. And I imagine that the coaching staff might be more willing to look his way first. Just, just, sorry, one more thing to add on to that. Jones was much more athletic in, uh, in his, you know, pre-draft workouts, just, you know, a, a different type of athlete than Jamal Williams. And that's not to say that that's like the most important thing. There have been relatively unathletic running backs to have success, but, um, I think it does give him another edge. Yeah, 
I, I remember, too, when I was looking at these guys coming into school, the profile for Jones jumped out a lot more. And, and going into the season, he was the guy that I thought would get the first look there. So we'll see how that shakes out. Now, a couple of names that uh, we have to imagine have no chance of breaking it at this point are Samaje Pirine and Wayne Gallman, who were playing behind Darius Geis and Saquon Barkley. These are guys, I guess, at this point, we'd have to wait till maybe later in their career when they change teams. But as Blair pointed out in his articles, you know, it's going to be very challenging for these guys to make that happen, especially in year five when the rookie contracts expire. Long term, do you see any hope for either of them? I can't imagine you were that high on either of them coming out of school. I did like P. Ryan to the extent that he was very productive as a true freshman at Oklahoma. And uh, even in his second and third seasons, when he was having to split work with Joe Mixon, he was still pretty productive. Um, but at this point, yeah, P. Uh, P. Ryan and Gallman, I think they're basically left for dead. I don't have much interest in either. Yeah, I'd have to agree with that. I've never been high on Gallman that much. And Piran, I was hoping last season could make the most of some of the opportunity he had. I believe that he had a couple of good games, but never really did much to make us feel like long term, there's a lot of hope for him. Now, a similar player in that he had one monster game was uh, Corey Clement for the Eagles. He actually put up a 26-point performance in... (laughs) Uh, week nine, obviously Jay Ajayi is there. You think he has any chance of getting into this rotation? I think he's in the rotation. I think that's okay. like a pain, uh, you know, in the side for everyone who wants Jay Ajayi to break out. Um, but right. yeah, I think he's in the rotation, especially now. I can't remember who was, who was the big guy, Blunt, especially now that Blunt, Blunt is yeah. gone. Um, I think Clement, uh, because he's an all around fairly versatile type of player. I think he could actually be a third down, uh, like a three down back if they wanted to use him in that way. But yeah, I think they're going to continue to give him a role. Yeah, me too. And I think it makes sense uh, to get him involved for a number of reasons for that team. And the passing game is certainly the way to do it. Not that it's a huge jump, but in the first half of the season, he was only seeing like one target a game. Down the stretch, they start did start to give him three looks a game, which I know isn't much, but it does kind of signal that maybe they're starting to incorporate him more. And as you said, with Blunt gone, it makes sense that he could get into the mix. And you have to figure if Ajayi misses some time, he would be the guy that would step up, especially with that team not going after one of these high profile running backs in the draft like there'd been rumors that guys they might have been looking at and i think that actually might have been where he had the uh, bit of the blow up in the meeting is that right yeah it's, it's possible i honestly don't know the details in terms of which team it was that uh right he had issues with but in in terms of uh just clement yeah i mean they used him um they used him more in the playoffs too uh specifically as a receiver so i think he definitely has a role there one more guy uh, who is marginally interesting is Jeremy McNichols uh, with San mm-hmm. Francisco, just because uh, two things. One, whoever becomes the lead back there, I think will have a lot of opportunity. And two, it is not uncommon for a Shanahan to use a guy who just kind of comes from nowhere. And McNichols has the athletic profile and the collegiate production, I believe, to have success in the NFL. Right. And then one more name that I did want to mention that I think a lot of people are high on this player and I can understand why they were. uh, But Deonta Foreman, I can understand Lamar Miller has never really lived up to the potential that looks like it's been there. But um, 
I do think that, you know, rehabbing from that injury, which was significant, even though it seems like it's on track, uh, you know, an Achilles injury is tough and the team's going to be doing everything they can to get him back. But I still have to imagine that's going to give the first look to Lamar Miller. It might take him a little bit of time to get back into the fold. Are you feeling like Miller is going to last out the season or, you know, is Foreman maybe a guy that you think there's more of that chance of having that breakout in year two that I'm giving him credit for? Yeah, I think the injury is a big hurdle to overcome. And uh, with Miller, what we saw there, and this is a small sample, but his production with Watson at quarterback was pretty good. So even if Foreman is able to, I expect whether it's Foreman or whether it's Alfred Blue or someone, I expect someone to siphon off some touches from Lamar Miller, but I still think Miller will uh, get the lion's share of the production. Yeah, and it's probably worth noting, too, that the team has kept Alfred Blue around, and we have seen them turn to him at times of need, and he's performed okay. So I think that, you know, they're probably going to be fine with leaving Blue in the mix, giving giving Miller the first shot. So before we close out on the running backs here, um, it's probably worth noting the only other players that I see having a major shot could be Chris Carson if Rashad Penny... If something doesn't materialize there, I know some people like Chris Carson. I have to imagine I like Penny. I think he's going to be fine. Perhaps um, Elijah McGuire if Isaiah Crowell can't come to fruition, but I don't know if the offense is there. And perhaps the only other name that you could point to would be, well, I'm not even sure if Elijah Hood I have any confidence in. That is an outside shot. Uh, But before we close off, James Conner. He is Le'Veon Bell's backup right now. So that that breakout isn't going to come this year. If Le'Veon Bell is not with the team next year, do you think that Connor is a guy that could become a major player in that offense? Or do you think the team's going to look somewhere else, be it the draft, pulling another free agent, maybe a Tevin Coleman, something like that, if Bell does leave? Hmm, man, I liked Connor a lot in college, and I liked his story of overcoming cancer, but I just don't think he has the athleticism for it. Honestly, uh, this is an outside shot, but Jalen Samuels, the kind of you know tight end slash fullback H-back that they drafted in the sixth round, I believe, uh, mm-hmm. you know, he they, you know, quote unquote, have him at fullback, but he's not really a fullback. Like Roosevelt Nix is the, uh, you know, like blocking type of fullback, but they have Jalen Samuels is an all around weapon. And to the extent that he is the, I think right now, clearly the second best pass catching back on that team behind Bell, like he is very good in that role. Uh, I think he actually could replace part of what they want Bell to do in that offense if Bell were to suffer an injury or were to leave in free agency after the season. Okay, that that that's fair enough, and that's another name that we need to add to keep keep track of. So it seems like our consensus kind of is Cohen should have a good season, but the main guy that we'd be looking to for a breakout is Joe Mixon. Uh, just to give you a quick idea of his workload before we close off, we did see a stretch in weeks 11 and 12 where he was getting 20 attempts, getting three targets, and he turned those one of those performances into a 26-point performance. Uh, also, just to remind you, coming out of school, Joe Mixon did have a pretty Pretty solid profile. Um, athletically, 77th uh, percentile, 40-yard dash, very good speed score of 111, showed some uh, strength on the bench, 
And the only real, or excuse me, the real uh, nice thing for him was 6.8 yards, 91st percentile college yards per carry. His college target share was high. It was around the 80s. Pretty athletic guy. So certainly a name to uh, look out for. So let's shift our focus to the wide receivers. Let me just read off some of these names quickly, Matt, before before we start breaking them down. So the two guys that did break out last year were Juju Smith-Schuster and Cooper Cup. So Schuster finished 23rd, Cup finished 25th. The next closest player was Trent Taylor, who uh, came in at 68, uh, catching passes for the 49ers. There's Kenny Galladay, Zay Jones, Corey Davis, Taewon Taylor, Matt Collins, Kendrick Bourne, Curtis Samuel, Josh Reynolds, Mike Williams, and there's some names below there that we might get to. But of those top names, I think the guy for me that I like the most is Kenny Galladay. Uh, is that where you were going to go as well? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, total monster, great production in spurts. Uh, and yep. the the thing is that there are two established receivers in that offense, but I think he has the physical profile and the production from college to be able to translate to the NFL and become a number one receiver. And like there were some times when he was just absolutely physically dominant. And it's just a question of whether he can consistently do that in his second season. Yeah, well, I mean, he came storming out of the gate. Let me just get the exact uh, exact numbers here. But his week one and week two, if I recall correctly, were monster performances. And then I think he struggled with injury in the first couple of weeks of the season. Okay, I pulled up the first week of the season. He had the two touchdowns, went for 23 uh, fantasy points. So a strong start, struggled with some injuries. And as you said, a, you know, a very solid athletic profile, 6'4", 218, ran the 40 in four and a half seconds. That's an 110 speed score, tremendous catch radius for this guy. So he has all of the tools. Now, in my opinion, yes, he's playing with two other established wide receivers, but it is with a solid quarterback and you know there's the opportunity for him to make a dent there i like golden tate i like marvin jones but they're not untouchable kind of players so if he is able to use that athleticism and function like he did in that very small first game sample when he got back later in the season he was only in seven or eight point kind of guy but the potential is there so that was galladay now trent taylor we have an interesting situation here He's in San Francisco playing alongside a cast of other receivers who I think Marquise Goodwin projects as the number one. Perhaps Dante Pettis could beat him out. A lot of questions in that Kyle Shanahan offense. Jarek McKinnon coming in. Is there room for a player like Trent Taylor to crack into the top 36? I'm inclined to say I doubt that this offense is going to put a player like Taylor up there when, with my expectation being that McKinnon's going to finish pretty high and out of um, Goodwin or uh, Pettis, we're probably going to see one of them do well as in addition. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Uh, Trent Taylor is someone who is intriguing, and I think he does have you know, maybe some sort of Wes Welker type of potential, but also Pierre Garçon is someone who uh, oh, right. conceivably him, will yeah. be coming back too. Um, so yeah, I don't think there's going to be much room there for Trent Taylor. 
Right. And then I think the next name uh, that would be worth mentioning, well, I shouldn't say it like that, but a name that would have been worth mentioning is A. Jones. Obviously, there's some question of what's going on in his life, some things he needs to deal with. I don't think that I would have been identifying him as a breakout player anyway. But that brings us to Corey Davis. So he is in Tennessee. Figures to be a good opportunity for him. He's going to have time to build some chemistry with Marcus Mariota, who had a little bit of a down season last year, is hoping to recover. There's also some players there that are like you got Rashard Matthews, Jonu Smith, who I'm expecting some things from as he moves forward and they phase out Delaney Walker. Is this the year for Davis or do you think maybe it's a little bit down the road if you do think that he has a breakout in him? No, I think this is the year. Um, so I'm, I'm fairly bullish on him, especially with the transition to a different offensive system, no more kind of quote unquote exotic smash mouth there in Tennessee. Right. Uh, so yeah, I think this is, this is the year it's, uh, kind of hard, I think to be too bullish on Corey Davis. Like I think he has, uh, not number one overall wide receiver type of potential, but I think he could be a top 12, you know, like wide receiver one in the league this year. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny how quickly we can forget the expectations that people had for a certain player. I know there were some people that were so high on Corey Davis in the summer last year. So he saw 65 targets. One thing that hurt was he didn't find the end zone. Um, but like you, you, you know, like you alluded to, there's a lot of promise there for Davis. And I think outside of Galladay, he's probably the number two guy that I would slate in to potentially have a breakout season. So Taewon Taylor is also on Tennessee. I think naturally the expectations that we have for Davis remove him from that possibility. But an intriguing name is Mac Hollins in the Eagles scheme. Perhaps Wentz comes back finds a young receiver like Hollins to latch onto. Do you see any potential for him there? I'm trying to make a case for him, but I'm not really finding any way to do that. <laughs> I only averaged about three points per game last season. Yeah, I think he might be one of those guys who has sort of like, um, I say this and it might sound like an insult, but I don't mean it as an insult at all, but like James Jones type of upside. Like Jones mm -hmm. was someone like who hung around a good team and a good wide receiver unit for years before he really got his shot. And I think that might be the case with someone like Hollins. You know, he wasn't a top 100 pick. He has Jeffrey to contend with, Nelson Aguilar, now Mike Wallace. Like, he doesn't really uh, duplicate much of what any of those guys do. Maybe the closest is Alshon Jeffrey. Um, but I think right. he's just blocked. But I think he's going to be a very good number four wide receiver for a number of <laughs> years. And then, you know, one of those guys will get injured or leave. And then I think he'll get his shot. Yeah. Always good when you're labeled as a very good number four wide receiver, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's just a circumstance. You know, he's, he's on a good team, uh, a dynamic offense. He's just buried behind three guys who have very locked in roles. Yeah, for sure. So bringing us to another player now who finds himself around other talented players, but is talented in his own right, is Curtis Samuel. This was a guy that was a second round pick, solid athletic profile. There was excitement about him. But now we look forward, the Panthers bring in DJ Moore, perhaps a more talented, I would say a more talented young wide receiver. They have Devin Funches there. They have Christian McCaffrey receiving passes. Any chance that Samuel has the breakout this year, when I look at it as much as I'd like to say, yes, I have trouble saying that. No, I, I think there's very little chance. And uh, especially the addition of DJ Moore, I think really hurts him. And also the, I mean, I don't know how much Torrey Smith is going to keep him on the field. 
uh, sorry, keep him off of the field. But, um, you know, I, I think Torrey Smith is kind of locked in there to his stretch the field type of role. Uh, if they didn't have him, I think Curtis Samuel would have a chance as the number three receiver uh, and then someone who could, could kind of carve out his own niche role in what he did in that offense. I just don't know if he's going to see the field. Yeah, and I mean, he, so he missed week 11 on the most targets he saw were seven in week 10. But before that, there really wasn't a whole lot of action. Highest air yards on the season were 76, which also came in that week 10. But he only averaged about 31 air yards per game. You've added in a dynamic player in DJ Moore this season. I just don't see it materializing for Samuel. Uh, and I think long term for Samuel, obviously, he took a huge hit with them bringing in DJ more perhaps when Greg Olson hangs things up that gives him some you know you know it opens up some targets in that offense but I wouldn't bank on it quick interjection here Matt and I recorded this episode on Tuesday around 8 30 before the Hunter Henry news broke he will be missing the season naturally that would have changed the forthcoming analysis Mike Williams, I think we need to talk about playing for the Chargers. Rookie season did not go as planned. He was another one of those guys that there was a lot of hype for heading into uh, the NFL. Didn't materialize a year one, year two, any possibility playing behind Keenan Allen? I don't I don't think so. Uh, I think a lot of it just depends on well on, on two things. One, how good Mike Williams actually is. Like, mm-hmm. is he a good player who is good enough? regardless of how good uh, Tyrell Williams is or how good Travis Benjamin is, is Mike Williams good enough? Is he actually a first-round caliber type of player? Is he good enough to uh, force the coaches to give him playing time and to give him targets? Uh, And then kind of correlated with that, uh, will Tyrell Williams and or Travis Benjamin take a step backwards? Uh, Because like something has to happen uh, and, and just like in the pecking order for Mike Williams to be able to get targets and whether that's like him just of like his sheer talent forcing that or someone regressing, something has to change. But if things stay as they are now, Mike Williams is, you know, just like a number three, number four wide receiver on a team that likes to give Melvin Gordon the ball a lot. Yeah, and then that's even without mentioning Hunter Henry, who I think this year is probably going to see a little boost in production. And I like Williams and Benjamin from a somewhat from a fantasy perspective, but I think in terms of just looking at that receiving core and how the pieces all work, I think they fit in there nicely as well. So it's not like the team really needs to push Williams into any type of role there. And I wasn't as convinced, um, you know, of his just pure ability as a receiver coming to school as others were. So I'm going to say, I don't think we see the breakout this year. And I think his long-term prospects are looking like a bust. Yeah, I hate to say that, but he feels very Laquan Treadwell-esque. Although I I do think Williams has uh, slightly more long-term potential than Treadwell, um, but that is based almost on nothing. Like, that's just me kind of like, I I think it just Williams has uh, slightly more potential long-term. Oh, I I would agree with that because that just makes me want to bring up the question to get your take on this since we haven't talked about this before. Is is Treadwell even good? I'm not convinced he's he's good (laughs) at all, right? I, I, I mean... We don't have much evidence that he is good except for like one highlight play where he made a really good one-handed catch. I mean, the one thing I will say is that Treadwell was very young when he entered the league. Right. Uh, So maybe there is this adjustment period uh, and, you know, in his third or fourth season or something like that, maybe he could break out. 
uh, like it, it does happen. Like, I mean, it's, uh, I would say it's sort of like in the 5% range of happening where you do have guys like Michael Irvin, who, uh, although Irvin still had more production in his first three seasons, but Irvin didn't really break out until his fourth year. You know, like there, there are these instances of first round guys uh, who just don't do much in their first few seasons in the league. And then, you know, somehow it happens for them in the fourth year, sometimes the third year. But uh, yeah, I mean, as we've indicated on the show, most of the time, if a guy is going to break out, it happens in years one and two. Um, but there are these guys where sometimes it just, it doesn't happen for them right away. Uh, so I think Williams could be one of those guys just because of the the situation that he's in in the depth chart. But yeah, Treadwell, is he good? I have no idea. Yeah. And, and like you said, there's not a whole lot of evidence to support it at this point. And just kind of hearing you talk, it makes me think, at least anecdotally, when I start running through scenarios in my mind, I feel like these guys that don't hit early on that were that were high drafted prospects, the guys that there were a lot of hype about, if they do manage to finally break out, it has to kind of do with a situation aligning for them where they're given an opportunity kind of by necessity of the roster that they're in to be given the opportunity to step up. If you look at the offense that Treadwell is in, it just doesn't look like it's on the horizon. So, you know, like you said, you know, maybe there's a 5% chance or something like that, but I am not going to hold my breath on it. So to Go through some more of these names. There's uh, Josh Malone, Chad Hansen, Travis Rudolph, who was fantastic at Florida State. Uh, unfortunately, I'm not seeing much hope for. Uh, Ardarius Stewart uh, playing for the Jets. Um, Ryan Switzer, Jehu Chesson. Um, any of these names working out for you? Stacey Coley, Robert Davis, John Ross. He's probably one <laughs> worth mentioning. Yeah, so there there are three guys uh, I'm looking at this list of kind of underperformers who are intriguing. So Chad Hansen uh, is sort of like a Cooper Cup redux type of guy, like similar type of, of like body athletic capability, uh, but was super productive in one season at Cal. Uh, so like maybe he could carve out a role as a slot receiver with the Jets. Um, you know, you don't really know with a guy like that. I believe he was drafted in the fourth round, the fifth round. So he doesn't have a lot of, uh, draft capital invested in him, but he seems like the kind of guy, like if he can hang around in the league for a couple of years, maybe in year three, year four, he has a chance to break out, but I don't, I don't see it happening this year, but he's someone who is, I think a little interesting, a little undervalued for dynasty, but not for this year, two guys at the bottom of the list. Krishan Hogan from Marion, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, NAIA school, uh, but incredibly productive, uh, big bodied guy, very athletic for his size. Again, just super productive at a small school was on IR last year, but is with the Colts. There's a lot of opportunity on that depth chart. Like really no one except for T.Y. Hilton, I think has a solidified role. So I could see Krishan Hogan uh, having a better chance of getting an opportunity than you would normally expect for someone, you know, coming from a small school, coming off of the IR as a rookie. And then, and then John Ross, uh, I mean, yeah, what can we say? A guy who was drafted with a top 10 pick who did, uh, if not nothing, maybe less than nothing last year. <laughs> like it was, it was brutal. We couldn't do diddly poo. 
yeah nice. i had to good nice Thank drop you. nice drop there <laughs> i think you. that's the first drop in the podcast so that good. is the that is the first the first drop i figured i would hit you with it so we have we have a couple more in the works i'm gonna try not to overuse it so if you're out there listening hoping it doesn't become like an every other minute thing uh it won't yeah but seriously i say he did less than nothing uh he had two targets no receptions one rush 12 yards and he fumbled so literally he had negative fantasy points on the year uh, so literally he was worse than just someone who got no playing time last year. Um, but that said phenomenal physical profile in terms mm-hmm. of raw speed. Uh, and I think he was, uh, more productive at the university of Washington than he gets credit for. Um, you know, I, he had a young breakout age. He played some cornerback, moved back to the wide receiver position, He's someone who is intriguing. I just don't know how much opportunity he's going to get. But there is, you know, like, yeah, there is wide receiver three uh, kind of Tyree kill boom bust potential within his profile. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's worth reminding people these numbers just absolutely pop off the page. If you go to playerprofiler.com where I am right now, breakout age of 18.8, 18 yards per reception in college but more importantly a 422 40 yard dash burst score of 129 86th percentile when you see numbers like that and you think about the fact that he's still only 22 and a half it's hard not to get excited obviously you have aj green there another young receiver and tyler boyd who i don't know your outlook on boyd but i kind of liked coming out of school as well i guess if we look at the Bengals' offense you know do you think that he can be the wide receiver too uh for the Bengals, or do you think he's going to be the type of guy that's going to have to carve out more of a niche type of role i think it could be a combination like uh, like uh wide receiver three plus where like maybe yeah. LaFell isn't quite as productive as they want, or they don't give him the ball as much as they did last year. Uh, and then, you know, like he gets a few scripted plays per game and a few more touches per game than you'd maybe expect. Uh, and then he's just highly efficient with those. You know, like he has some like 70 yard touchdowns where it's like, oh my goodness, I didn't see that coming, but he just got 20 fantasy points. You know, so like things like that where, um, you don't expect it, but it just happens because they use him as a kick returner and he gets a touchdown. You know, just like Tyree Kill-esque type of, you know, fluky splash plays where over the course of the season it adds up to, you know, like wide receiver three production. Yeah, and just to put things in perspective on the fell, so the last couple of seasons he's averaged around 83 targets per game. Uh, solid air yards, actually, you know. So even though he's a name that you might forget, uh, other than when he had that one season with the Patriots where he was pretty good, you know, there is a fair amount of work going his way. He is the entrenched number two, which is, will make it hard for these younger receivers that they do have to get work. And then obviously you have AJ Green who could very realistically go for 170, 175 targets. So I think we've covered all of the receivers that I thought were worth mentioning, unless there was a name that I missed that you wanted to touch upon. Now we're good. But one player I think we need to talk about with a very, very late breakout. Tavon Austin goes to Dallas. Going to make the switch to running back. Is this the year? Um, No, I believe not. <laughs> no, it, unless he gets not. Unless he gets those two dozen touches that Stephen Jones is predicting. 
Not a lot on the horizon for Tavon Austin in Dallas, but something you should be paying attention to is the Fantasy Football Players Championship, the home of season-long high-stakes fantasy football. The fantasy draft season is heating up, and the FFPC has a format to suit your interest and budget. Whether you like best ball or super flex or classic managed leagues, their drafts daily with entry fees starting just $35, jump into a slow or live draft today. If you like Dynasty, the FFPC has almost 200 active dynasty leagues with entry fees starting at $77 and going up to $2,500. And the incredible thing is not a single dynasty league has folded in eight years. New dynasty leagues are forming right now with startup drafts launching on a regular basis. Don't miss the FFPC experience. Go to myffpc.com and register now. That's myffpc.com, the home of season-long high-stakes fantasy football. So for our next segment, Matt, I wanted to talk about um, some historical projections that I pulled together and kind of see if we feel like these hold any weight for the upcoming season. So just to give a little background on how I pulled these projections together, it's something like we've done at the site before where we've called them similarity scores. But essentially what you're doing is you're taking a player's output in year N, in our case, that would be the 2017 season. And you are then looking for players who at similar points in their career and for stats that matter and stats that carry year over year produced similar results. And then you see how those players did in their subsequent season, their year and one season. Um, and that allows you to build a range of outcomes based on things that have actually happened. You think that is a description that, you know, allows listeners not familiar with this concept to make sense of it? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a very good description. And if you wouldn't mind, I would be curious to hear what the the metrics are uh, that you found to be predictive year over year. Yeah, so I, you know, it really you'd like to get. Um you would like to get, I guess, fancy with this, you know, when you're building some type of a model, but in large regard, you know, it's really just the things you would expect. So for right. quarterbacks, you know, one input that sometimes isn't always used, but QBR actually, I find to be pretty significant. Um, interception, something like that does not really factor in. A lot of this is going to be the things that contribute to scoring. So yards are big that I think I don't have the files open where I built this, but I think that yards were most important for quarterbacks, mm -hmm. then touchdowns. Um, and then, you know, it's tricky too when you're building these because for certain players, rushing matters a lot, like in the case of a Cam Newton. But, you know, for right. other players, it's not going to matter as much. So I had to kind of tinker with that because quarterback is an interesting position. It's kind of a case-by-case -case basis. But if you're looking at something like running back, in the case of a running back, I did build in um, expected points, which is something we track on Rotoviz, which if you haven't been to the site, it's basically looking at the touches that a player gets in the game, where they are on the field. Um, and coming up with an expectation of how many fantasy points they should have scored of that. Now, I think it makes sense that you'd include something like that for running back because it's a position that many cases is about, you know, the opportunity that you're given. So obviously for running back, it's going to be touchdowns are more important than they are with a position like wide receiver in PPR. So for wide receiver, it was very much about the targets, probably more so than any other position based on that raw opportunity. Uh, and then you might see an adjustment like in tight 
tight ends, touchdowns were more important because that's a larger portion of the scoring. But really, it's a lot of the things that you would expect, which I was surprised to see with minor tweaks in there. Some uh, positions, it did make a difference when I added in expected points, but others, you know, that's kind of accounted for in the other metrics you'd be looking at. But so nothing too crazy. It's really mainly the things that you would expect. All right. That's awesome. So the first player that I want to look at, and we're, we're going to run through a couple of these. At some point, these will be coming out on the site. But Matt Ryan, to put things in perspective, he's a player that in 2013 finished 15th at the position, 7th in 2014, 19th in 2015, 2 in 2016, a season that I don't for I don't see him repeating ever. In 2017, he was 15. So the historical projection for him is putting him with a low of 227 points, a high of 312, and a median at 268. So that puts him at quarterback 23. Is that too low? You know, I know we're looking at a range of outcomes there, but do you feel like he's the type of player that won't fall back that far? Uh, yeah, I think I think he belongs somewhere between uh, what we saw in 2016 and 2017. Um, so I think we could maybe project him for a little bit closer to 4,500 uh, yards maybe even not quite that threshold, but I mean, that's a mark that he hit for uh, five straight seasons. And then last year he was uh, just under 4,100. So I think we could expect a few more yards and then maybe a few more touchdowns. Um, So, you know, but I think quarterback two is sort of like his wheelhouse. Like that's where he belongs. Yeah. And the key thing that was taking him down last season was the 19 touchdowns. And I know he only threw 19 touchdown passes in 2015. And then we saw that major progression in 2016. But I think I'm with you. You know, last year, I don't think was truly representative of what we're going to see for Matt Ryan. So I think this is one of those where his touchdowns from last year, which I wouldn't reasonably expect, he's more of a 25 touchdown pass per season type of guy, was weighing him down. So I'd expect him to fall more in line between that medium median and that high projection, probably sitting more at the median just because we've seen that real solid season for Matt Ryan. I don't think we're going to see anything like he did in 2016. But again, you know, he is that prototypical quarterback two in fantasy. So I would say this is a case where what we're doing often when we play fantasy is we're evaluating a range of outcomes and we're trying to Almost like in your mind, if you can picture a normal distribution, it's thinking about for a player, their probability, you know, where they are going to most likely fall in that distribution. And I think in the case of Ryan, you know, it's more towards that 268. Still, though, he's one of those guys I wouldn't expect to have any type of bounce back and finish with inside the top 10. Ben Roethlisberger, on the opposite side, he projects with the fifth highest average. In 2014, he managed to finish sixth, but he's one of those players for as good of an NFL quarterback as he is and as potent of an offense, we haven't really seen him finishing too high. Do you think this is one of those cases where maybe this projection would be misleading us? Uh, Amazingly, no. I mean, I don't think I would draft him that high, but... On a weekly basis, he has that type of upside, and uh, especially the thing is, I, and I would like your your opinion on this. Sure, his his home road splits are ridiculous, but they've been there for so long that I think it is something that is actually predictive. 
uh, you know, for whatever reason it is. When he plays at home, he does much better than on the road. Like the splits are just uh, like astronomical. A top three fantasy quarterback at home, a below average fantasy quarterback on the road. Uh, and so especially for best ball leagues, uh, Roethlisberger is the type of quarterback I think you really do want because of his outrageous ceiling eight times a year. Yeah, and I guess what speaks to that, too, is in 55% of his games in the last three seasons, he's finished in the top 12. So he's a starting quarterback in more than half of his games, and he's going for 25-plus uh, points in 23% of his games, so nearly a fourth of the games. In regard to the home-road split, I do recall that Anthony Amico wrote something heading into last season about those splits that kind of tried to dismiss it. But I do think there is such an established pattern that perhaps even if it's not predictive, you know, in a mathematical sense, I think it's hard to ignore that, yes, Ben Roethlisberger historically has played better at home than he has away. And I think that it's fair to expect good performances when he's at home. The only thing that gives me pause about Roethlisberger is how many times have people overdrafted him? And you said, you know, you wouldn't go out and draft him early, but I think we need to keep that in mind because at the end of the day, in the last five seasons, his highest points per game have only been 19. So, this is a quarterback. He's getting older, dynamite running back on that team. Yes, they're going to be looking to pass, but to me, his upside is very limited. His high in the projection comes out at 340. I don't think that's possible. He has a very uh, concentrated range, though, for a quarterback with a low of 290, a median of 323, a high of 340. I think that's fair in that there can be good expectations for him, but I'd really be surprised if he starts approaching that median to high. I'd put him more at the low. What do you think his actually where is his ADP right now? So his ADP in the last time that I pulled it was around 112. Now, granted, that was like a week and a half ago. I can't imagine it changes too much. But what that put him in like somewhere, maybe, uh, you know, he's probably going to go, I think, at this point between 10 to 13 in like a best ball league. Yeah, around 10 to 13. So. To me, that's probably too early to take a quarterback, especially like a guy like Roethlisberger, who I think has a capped upside. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I think he's I think he's fine in that range. Um, I don't know if I would necessarily take him there, but um I don't know, maybe maybe the way to think of it is that like for me he's he's almost like an auto DFS play every 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 time he's at home. You know? I mean like every time he's at home, he's someone I want on my team. Right. Don't get me wrong. Good quarterback for the right purposes. Just if, you know, you're in a redraft league, I don't know if I'm going to be going for him. And I guess the final thing I would say for him in regard to him being overdrafted, his positional ADP in 15 was quarterback five, seven in 2016, 12 in 2017. The only time he only outplayed it one of those years. I mean, still a positional rank in 15 of 22, 2016 of 13. He did get to seven last season. So I guess that is pretty solid. Maybe I'm down on him more than I need to be, but I have a lot of pause. So I think you're higher on him than I am. I'm a little bit lower. It's been Roethlisberger, though, so I think everybody out there has a good enough of an idea of what to expect. I guess before we leave Roethlisberger, unrelated to fantasy, do you think he is a uh, surefire first ballot Hall of Famer? Yeah, I think he will be a first ballot Hall of Famer. Well, maybe not first ballot, uh, but I think he definitely is a Hall of Famer. Yeah, me too. You know, I've heard that there's 
I, I can't really recall where it was. Maybe I read it or I was listening to something and there was a little bit of a debate. But in my mind, I was I was kind of surprised to even hear that there was much of a question. Um, so I think we're on the same page there. If we move over to running backs. So we move over to the running back side of the world. A player that I'm interested in is Alex Collins. Now, he projects between 123 and 239 with a median of 172. We have a broader range for running backs um, because your comps are going to be all in, – like in comparison to a quarterback, your year-end one comps are going to be more all over the place for a number of reasons, uh, which might be something to talk about in another episode. But that makes him an upper-level running back too. Seems like the guy that should get the majority of work in Baltimore. I have trouble getting on board with that. You know, I don't think that if you looked at his profile purely on the uh, athletic measurables, he'd be the type of guy that you would pinpoint for that. And I don't know if I'm looking at that Ravens offense that I think they're going to support a running back two of that caliber. Yeah, I think it's possible uh, because that's basically what he was last year. And mm-hmm. I don't know if that offense can be much worse than it was last year. And it, and it took him a while to establish himself, too. So he was pretty much a, uh, a you know, mid-level running back, too. And he started just 12 games. You know, if he becomes the guy, uh, then, yeah, I think he's a high-end running back, too. Which uh, I think maybe speaks more to the dearth of real running back options uh, <laughs> instead of like his overall capability. But I mean, at the same time, you know, he was an outrageously productive runner in the SEC. So, you know, it, it's possible that he really could be a decent football player. Yeah, well, ah, gosh, it's hard for me because, it, it, you know, if I do pull up his his game log from last season, when he kind of got entrenched as the main guy he went 16 6 17 14 24 25 10 and 10 yet so you're right you know if things do go as they did last year the potential is certainly there i'm noticing kind of an interesting paradigm here which is you're always optimistic i'm always pessimistic it seems like so i think that's good yeah uh i definitely tend to be more optimistic except when i'm not and then i'm really not uh, so maybe, maybe it, it takes uh, it takes a little bit for me to uh, really be pessimistic about a guy. Okay. All right. Well, that's fair. So I think maybe we'll we'll push people right into the middle. Derrick Henry, low of 82, high of 187. That is a broad range, but it does speak to the possibility for a really bad outcome. Naturally, Dion Lewis is going to be there. So I don't think anybody's expecting Henry to have a monster season, but I do think people still view him as a guy that could be a running back too. Projection like that does give some cause for concern. You know, a median of 145. Is this a projection that you think holds weight or there's something in the historical, you know, factors that aren't, uh, you know, truly encapsulating his situation in 18? Yeah, uh, not really a fan of the situation. The Dion Lewis signing, I think, is pretty brutal because although I don't think Dion Lewis is best used as a three down back, uh, I think the team will give him a little more run on first and second downs than they probably should, and that will really just hurt Derrick Henry's uh, his capability there. So un- unless Deion Lewis, unless like I slash people in the industry, unless like we are just reading the Deion Lewis signing incorrectly, and they plan to use him as more of like a niche kind of change of pace, you know, third down plus type of back, 
uh, I think it's it's a bad situation for Henry. So he's someone I'm avoiding. Yeah, you know, I have trouble getting behind the idea that um, Henry is as good as we might have originally thought. The organization was hesitant to really let him run away with things. It seemed like they were always favoring Murray. When Murray got injured, Henry still wasn't really able to capitalize like you would like to see him do. So his high end outcome puts him around 12 points per game. His average projection puts him around nine. I'd really be shocked if he significantly outplays that. I actually think as disappointing as it might be, this is more of a realistic expectation than an unrealistic range of outcomes for Henry. No. Yeah, I agree with that. Okay. Shifting over to wide receiver, the LA Rams really outperformed expectations last season. I expect some natural regression to come. Player that I really liked last season was Robert Woods. Now, the model really, really likes him with a low of 165, median of 211, high of 253. But the thing that it doesn't know is that that offense in LA has changed. You now have Brandon Cooks coming in, this abstraction of Sammy Watkins. Uh, I think when I look at this situation, I'd like to be as high on the model as Woods, but I think he's probably going to come closer to that low. Obviously, Cooper Cup, talented receiver in his own right. Brandon Cooks isn't that prototypical wide receiver one that's going to get, you know, maybe like an AJ Green share of 175 or so targets. I'd probably cap him around 135, 140, but it still will subtract from that seven targets per game that Woods saw last year, maybe bringing him down closer to five. Um, not to get cliche, but there's a lot of mouths to feed, especially with Cooks coming in. That I, I'm assuming you would imagine that's too high for Woods. Yeah, absolutely. So this is one of the areas where uh, I'm going to be pessimistic. And okay. I guess I should say like where I'm pessimistic, it's almost always like on a guy I've been pessimistic with for years. Oh, so, boy. So like it's just like, you know, uh, the, the Bayesian prior is very strong with this one. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, Woods. So a couple things. One, as you mentioned, your model doesn't know that Cooks. Uh, is someone who is new to the offense. It also doesn't know that uh, Sammy Watkins, who maybe could have been a number one in that offense, joined the team uh, in training camp or, or, you know, like uh, just a few weeks before the season started so that, uh, you know, the other guy who maybe could have had larger target share wasn't someone who is really acclimated to the offense. It also doesn't know um, the particulars of, uh, Cooper Cup. So it knows that he right. had a certain type of production, but it doesn't know that he was a rookie and that we could maybe expect him to have a, a bigger jump next year. And then it also doesn't know the particulars of Robert Woods. So uh, for instance, it knows what he did last year, but it doesn't know that for the first, the first four seasons of his career, he was a middling guy. Maybe some of that uh, production in Buffalo it's just due to the circumstances of being in Buffalo. Like, that's very possible. Um, but what I would expect for us to see is a guy who regresses from what ultimately will probably be a career best season. Yeah, I mean, I, th I have to agree, too. One of the major things, too, we have to think about is last season, he scored a touchdown every 17 targets. Um, that is just not and granted. He only had five touchdowns, but, you know, he played in 12 games. 
that pace is not going to continue in the coming season. And I should probably also mention, because I don't think I did when I was explaining this, but one of the things that the model does is it chops off the bottom 25% of comps in their year N1, and it chops off the top 25%. So it's leaving us with historically 50% of receivers fell in that range. So players could outperform. They could, um, you know, go below that average, but it does hold true in about 50% of the times we're going to see players fall within these ranges. But back to Woods, yeah, you know, you put all of this together, and I do think that last year was his best season. I think he outperformed. Had he been in Buffalo earlier in his career, I think he could have been a fantasy wide receiver three, but he really is just not a wide receiver one or even a wide receiver two type of guy. I think that a wide receiver three outcome for him this season would be very good. I'd put him more though as a wide receiver four. While we're talking about LA, do you think though that he finishes ahead of Cooper Cup or is Cup going to take that next step? No, I think Cooper, Cooper Cup takes the next step. I mean, I think they're going to, at the end of the season, have production that looks pretty similar in that they will basically be fairly interchangeable as kind of wide receiver two, wide receiver three type of players. But of the two, I actually prefer Cup. Oh, yeah. It's a tough call for me. I'm kind of viewing them similar. I guess where I would make the distinction is Cup probably has more upside moving in, moving into his second season. I think as things shake out, their ADP will be fairly similar. So to break that tie, given the youth of Cup and the you know only one season that we've seen from Woods so far, which was fairly analogous to Cup season last year, I would go with Cup. So to close things off, the last guy is Kenny Stills. The model actually likes him um, as a fringe wide receiver too expecting between 123 and 238 an average of 11 points per game so that places him a little bit ahead of Devontae Parker who I was surprised how much it likes and it puts him as Miami's top producing fantasy wide receiver in 2018 so my question to you would be do you expect it to play out like that and a median of 187 that 11 points per game is that achievable for Kenny Stills you know, I uh, I bizarrely think it is um, because I think he's going to get. So let's just look at, at the, the targets there. Jarvis Landry has vacated a lot of targets there um, and they don't really have an established tight end. Uh, Gesicki is someone who could emerge as a force there, but there are a lot of available targets. And so then it's a question of whether you think Devontae Parker actually can emerge in his fourth season as a true wide receiver one. Uh, And even if he does, I still think we could expect a a lot of targets or more targets to go to Kenny Stills than what he got last year. And last year was his, his best year in terms of uh, target share for the team. (coughs) So yeah, I think it actually is possible that Stills uh, could have even more production than what we saw last year. And that was his best season. Yeah, and I guess the one thing, though, there is so he was playing with Jay Cutler last season in air yards per target. uh, He ranked 10 in the league with 15 per target. Another interesting thing to note. So 39 of his passes came from below 10 yards, 41 between 11 to 20 and 25 at 20 plus. So this is a guy that on any given play, as we all know, has the opportunity to rack up big chunks of yardage, maybe break out for a touchdown. Now, in terms of the Cutler 
versus Tannehill uh, shift there. I don't really know. You know, can we expect Tannehill to target stills downfield as much as Cutler may have? Yeah, I don't know. I, I think that's like a, a big unknown that it's just like I think it's impossible for us to really to to divine that. I mean, we can see what he did with Tannehill uh, in 2015 and 2016. Um, but we can't really get a sense of how frequently he will be targeted because he had those years in the Jarvis Landry vacuum. So we really just don't know. Right. And, you know, for as touted of a prospect as uh, Devontae Parker was, he still hasn't put it together. I'm not necessarily on board that he's significantly, if better at all, than Kenny Stills. And the dimension that Kenny Stills will bring to this offense, I think, is one that will be more heavily utilized than Parker. So though Parker, I do think, will have some progression this season, I actually like Stills more. So uh, to close off, my final question to you would be, you're in a draft and you see Kenny Stills is available as maybe a wide receiver for on your team. Let's say it's redraft. Is he a guy that you would consider? Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, especially if it's, well, yeah, even redraft versus best ball, best ball, definitely, because mm-hmm. I think he has those, those peak performances in him, but even if it's just redraft, yeah, because he is a guy who, uh, I think can play in a variety of ways. Like they can get the ball to him deep, but I think they can also scheme for him, uh, in different ways across the field. So yeah, he has, you know, wide receiver two potential. And if you can get him at wide receiver four on your team, yeah, I think that's great value. Yeah, I guess my final thought on Stills would be, I think he will be able to do more than just be a down the field threat, which is, you know, something that it might, seem like that's, you know, he's a one trick pony with that, but I'm not sure that that's the case. So I'll be taking him ahead of Parker. I think in terms of that uh, Dolphins team, he's probably maybe the only player that I'll actually end up with on a significant amount of my teams outside of best ball. Um, So any final thoughts, anything NFL that you want to touch upon? Yeah, since we're since we basically I'm turning this into the Dolphins podcast Um, (laughs) question about two of the other wide receivers on that team. I'd like yep. to get your thoughts on uh, Leonte Carew was someone who, uh, you know, was intriguing as a draft prospect a few years right. ago, um, but he's really done nothing for his career. Uh, and then Jakeem Grant is someone who has uh, really not gotten much in the way of opportunity. Uh, he, but there were a couple games last year where he had some splash performances any thoughts on those two guys? And then, of course, like how much uh, of the work is Albert Wilson and Danny Amendola, uh, those two guys, how much are they going to steal? Yeah, I think that's the key question. You know, when I was talking through all this in my mind, I wasn't even really thinking about Wilson or Amendola. Uh, but to get to the first question, I liked Carew uh, coming out of college, you know, for where you would have been getting him. Grant, I wasn't as impressed with. Perhaps I should have been because I think now I actually like Grant better than Carew. So I think it would be more likely that he'd be the guy that would get, uh, you know, whatever work is going to be available. But I do think that's going to be behind Albert Wilson and uh, Danny Amendola. You know, in terms of targets, it's really hard for me to think of what they're going to get. So, ah, gosh, I don't know. I mean, I think it's realistic. Maybe they both end up somewhere between like 50 to 55, but without truly breaking out the team and thinking of where Landry's targets are going to go, it's hard to say. But I mean, I think outside of Kenny Stills and maybe taking – well, I think for me, ultimately it comes down to 
Are either of Albert Wilson or Danny Amendola, who you're going to be drafting later, going to have some type of breakout performance in that offense? I would say the odds are very, very yeah. low. If I was choosing between one, I might go Albert Wilson, but I doubt that uh, the team's going to make him more of a priority than Devontae Parker, perhaps even if they should. Yeah, I agree with that. I think the big thing is uh, whether those two guys combine to siphon enough of the target share away from Kenny Stills where he doesn't get the bump that we're expecting him to. I think that's the big question. Yeah. And then obviously the tight end position, it's going to be interesting, you know, for us, uh, you know, talented and as much of a freak athlete as Gasecki is, you know, we just have not seen many tight ends with the exception of Evan Ingram, um, you know, in his rookie season last year, really come out of the gate. And I'm not sure that it's going to happen in Miami. It kind of feels like a place where tight ends go to die a little bit, doesn't it? <laughs> Don't say that. Shut your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> I will not shut my mouth. Um, but, uh, you know, we'll continue these conversations uh, in the coming weeks. A lot more topics to discuss. A lot of things that we want to get to. Some that make more sense as we build to the actual season. Make sure that you go to Rotoviz. We're going to be with you every step of the way preparing this season. And we will hear as well on the pod. So, Matt, it was uh, good to have you back. Yeah, it was uh, good to... <coughs> I say this as I cough. It was good to be back and uh, good to be able to halfway make it through a podcast. Excellent. Well, I'm glad that we were able to connect for this one. And that's going to do it for today's episode. Once again, I'm Dave Cabin. You can follow me on Twitter at Dave Cabin FF. My co-host was Matthew Friedman, the Oracle of Iowa, who you can follow at Matt F. The Oracle. This has been Rotoviz Radio. Please subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a review and be sure to tune in next week. Thank you for listening to Rotoviz Radio. Please rate, review, and contact us via email at rotovizradio at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at Rotoviz Radio and support the pod by subscribing to Rotoviz at a 30% discount through the listener homepage, rotoviz.com forward slash podcast.